Hello, welcome to our sermon video for this week. I'm Paul White. I want to thank you for joining me today. You probably noticed the title you clicked on is called Righteousness as a Biblical Concept. Um, this is a this is an interesting one today for a couple of reasons. It's both old and new. What I mean by that is it is old in that I recorded this about four years ago. It's new in that I never aired it. We have been putting together off and on uh, different things to put behind our additional content at paulwhiteministries.com. And, and what that is, is just a little segment on our website for those who want a little more. You want a little more than what we offer in our podcast daily, or we offer in our midweek Bible study release, or we offer on this weekend release. And for for $50, you get a password and you get behind that paywall to see a few things that we don't offer anywhere else. Currently, we have the entire author walkthrough of our 2011 book, uh, Revelation to Transformation. We do 20-minute videos walking through that book, updating you on where we stand with that. That was over 40 of those. We are also working through our second book from 2013 called Between the Pieces, and we've put up about six chapters, almost seven chapters, um, that are available for you to walk through, and we're still recording those. And we have the entire audio version of this book, Righteous Saul versus Righteous Paul. This was from 2018. Well, we sat down in the spring of 2019 and did an introduction video, and eight session videos on this book. I decided, it's not very long, so I decided that it would be great to go deeper into the concepts covered in this book. So, I did videos, uh, lengths anywhere from 13, 14 minutes to 30 minutes, and we did eight of them, and they cover everything in this book with more detail. Things like righteousness, uh, Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, what it means to be a Pharisee in their context. What did Paul mean when he talked about the law, zeal, and righteousness? Uh, What rest looks like for a believer? We do a little lesson in Greek, and we also do a little lesson on the writing process. What I thought would be great today is to put up for you, for all of you, the introduction and session one to the Righteous Saul versus Righteous Paul module. This will be the only two of these that we release. Everything else, as of April the 1st, will be behind the additional content paywall. And we, in fact, we may even have them there before that, but definitely by April the 1st, we'll have all of those up. And if you are a a member of our additional content, you'll be able to get all eight videos, including the introduction. So without further delay, what I'm going to do is just go right into this. I'm going to air for you the introduction, which is about eight minutes long, and we'll go right out of the introduction into session one. I'm titling it for you, Righteousness as a Biblical Concept, because it's really what I talk about. We don't title the sessions. They're just session one, session two. So if you don't have a copy of this book, I encourage you to order one. Uh, I'll put the email address or the website address on the screen for Righteous Saul versus Righteous Paul. Again, additional content is available. The audio book is behind the additional content wall and all of the lessons that accompany this today. So without further delay, the intro and session one to our Righteous Saul versus Righteous Paul module. We're going to title it for you, Righteousness as a biblical concept. Hope you enjoy. God bless. 
welcome you to our module covering my 2018 book, Righteous Saul versus Righteous Paul. Over the course of the next several lessons that you're going to be involved in, we're going to try to flesh out some of the details of that book. I think any time that you put something to paper, you can really only go so deep without that becoming quite a volume that gets a little tough to wade through. So whereas we sort of lay out the path in that book and go down the road with Paul, I thought it'd be great to walk you through some lessons where we get to flesh out some of the details, put a little meat on the bone and, and really dig into some deeper waters in regards to some of the concepts that I think are quite interesting to help develop the character. Because that's really what we're looking at is the character of Saul and the character of Paul. And yes, I am aware that they are the same person and it's merely a changing of the name and the spelling of the name, but I think there's a lot more there. And there's some things that if we mine them out, I think will make it a little bit easier for us to understand Paul. And the end game is for us to understand ourselves. And so we're gonna cover several different concepts and one of them will be righteousness and what righteousness is, not just its definition, but what it is as a concept and how the biblical narrative handles this concept and literally changes around that concept. I think you might be surprised to see righteousness evolve in the, the reader's understanding and in the way it is treated throughout the Old and the New Testament. Then we're going to do a look at Saul of Tarsus because most of us, when we think of Paul, we think of Paul as the writer of the New Testament or as the, um, the post road to Damascus. But there's a Saul involved in the scripture that shapes a lot of things that we end up with with Paul. And so we want to look at how Saul would have become who he was, what not only he would have went through, but what might a first century Jewish man trained in the law have looked like and what shaped him into who he was. I think digging into that might give us an appreciation for what Saul considered was the righteousness that he had under the law. We'll also look at Paul of Tarsus. That's not a phrase we usually use. It's most commonly Saul of Tarsus, but I want to contrast those two characters. What makes Paul the man that he is sort of post-Damascus Road experience. What events shape him in his journey? And what causes him to become the kind of man who writes two-thirds of the New Testament? If we stop at, well, he had an experience on the road to Damascus, we might have the right answer, but we don't really understand much. What makes him into the sort of founder of Christianity as we know it? So we'll dig into some of the experiences and go a little deeper than you might be able to go in a sermon or in a lesson uh, and really try to un unpack a little bit of who he is. To do that, we'll have a, a whole section on Pharisees. This is something I've wanted to do for a long time is really dig into what it looked like to be a Pharisee, what you had to do to become a Pharisee, and why Paul talks about being a Pharisee of Pharisees. That seems crucial to me. In our, in our development and our understanding of what Paul is. So we'll dig into the history of Pharisee and where they came from and who they were. And we'll also take a look at how the New Testament treats the Pharisee versus perhaps how history treats the Pharisee. And you might be surprised to know 
that though are those are two different things. We'll break down Paul's description of law and zeal and righteousness and how he viewed his performance and in one light under Saul and then how he views his performance in a new light as Paul. And so we'll walk through a, a sort of a deeper look at his own self-description and how his methods of determining his value have translated over into the methods we use in the church today. That is not always a positive thing. I want to look at both the negative and the positive aspects of how Paul viewed his righteousness in the church world today. That's difficult because we can't bring Paul into the church, but we can bring Paul's concepts into the church, and I think we have, sometimes inadvertently. And we're also going to do a little work, I'm excited about this as well, on Greek word tense. Because it's more than just understanding what a Greek word is, or it's more than understanding where a Greek word is used, or what Greek word is used. We need to dig into the tense of that word. This is a topic that's a little difficult for us sometimes uh, in our understanding from English to Greek. We're not going to get into too deep of an issue with tense, but we will get into sort of an intermediate study of Greek word tense so that you can have a better understanding as a student of the word what a scripture might be trying to say to you when you read it so that when you go find a Greek word, you realize there's more than meets the eye. How did the author intend for that Greek word to be understood by his audience? How are we missing that from Greek to English? How might an understanding of that tense affect our interpretation of that scripture? These are vital and important issues. We're going to dig into some of those as we go. And the accompaniment to this module, of course, is the audio version of Righteous Saul versus Righteous Paul, which you have access to, as well as I hope you have access to the printed copy. We're going to work our way through the book, and I want to kind of give you a little insight into how the author, um, in this case myself, might take his own work, work through with you, the reader, the audience, and shape out a few concepts as we go. Perhaps little things that I don't necessarily deem we need a whole class for, but maybe a whole section of us working through that with you to bring a little bit of light into a couple of little areas here and there and maybe some clarity and give you some reasons behind why we write what we do. That might be beneficial to some of the writers out there who are working through some of your own manuscripts. Maybe you're working through essays or you're working through a, a thesis and you like to talk to other writers about their process. We'll go through that just a little bit because I think that is an important part of every book that you might ever talk about is how did we get to where we are with that and how does the author interpret it? That, among other things, as we try to work through this module, I hope you enjoy it. Righteous Saul versus Righteous Paul. Righteousness as a concept in the Bible is absolutely worth us digging in to try to bring out some of the fullness of it because it is such a popular concept in the Bible. I don't know how much you've done on your own with studying righteousness, but by my count, and again, this is my count, by my count, the word righteous or righteousness or righteousness is, which I'll try to break down and parse what the three the difference is in those three things in a moment appears over 360 times in the bible you could say that there's a verse of righteous or righteousness for every day of the year 
or at least a statement of righteousness for every day of the year if you were so inclined, which tells me it's sort of the underpinning of the Bible. I mean, the Bible talks more about righteousness than it does sanctification, more than it does justification. This one surprises me. More than it does salvation, not as much as it does holiness, but those two concepts are linked from the Old Testament into the New Testament is what it means to be righteous and what it means to be holy. So without a doubt, it's the underpinning of the theme of the Bible from the beginning on through. I want to show you righteousness not just as a definition. We want to cover that, but let's talk about it as, a, as how it appeared prior to the giving of the law. We're going to talk about it as it appeared in the law. And then we want to talk about it as it appears post-law, because of course that's the one that means the most to us. We are post-law, and so we need to understand righteousness from that point of view. Let's start in the scriptures. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9 is the Bible's first mention or first declaration of righteous. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man or a righteous man in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word sadiq. Noah was a just man, righteous man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And so the link in the very first mention of righteousness is walking with God. That's not coincidental. That's intentional. The Bible lays out for you what a righteous man looks like, a man who walks with God, or at least a man who is on good speaking terms with God. And that might be closer to our understanding or our concept of what righteousness is and what righteousness looks like. Its actual definition, sadiq in the Hebrew, refers to a king or to a judge being just and in the right. So then when the Bible starts to talk about righteousness as a concept, as a, as a status, it's talking about you being in the state of righteous. Uh, the first declaration of this is also Genesis, Genesis chapter 15. And this one's a little more popular because this one gets picked up a little more in the New Testament. Genesis 15 and 6, Abraham believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. So you take the twin concepts of righteous and righteousness simply in the book of Genesis to begin with. And righteous has a man walking with God and righteousness has God counting man's faith. So here is a righteousness that is an accounting term. God literally laying upon Abraham the status of righteousness. You could also define it this way. That, that's sort of a, a, a dictionary definition of righteousness. But there's more than dictionary definitions. This is a key concept to understanding any biblical term. Anyone can go out and buy a Bible dictionary. You can come up with what a word means, but you don't always get to the concept, to the heartbeat of the word. So you can have a dictionary definition of sadiq or a dictionary definition of, of uh, righteousness, but until you sort of let that ribbon run through the Bible, Old Testament to New Testament, you don't really get a, the, the theme or the concept of it. Sort of like, what does, what's the dictionary definition of love? Well, you might walk away with enough information to write a poem, but you don't walk away with enough information to fall in love. That's something that starts to flesh itself out as you experience love. 
So while you may have a dictionary definition of righteousness, how do we understand what really is without digging into the ins and outs in both Old Testament and New Testament? So I think one of the, the underlying things to understand about righteousness is that it is something God declares over you. It's not something you go out to achieve. From the very beginning, God declared Noah righteous. God declared Abraham righteous. So it can't be something we go get. It's something that is given to us. That's, a, that's not a New Testament concept. And that I think we need to understand. Righteousness has always been the same from God. It's God to us. Now, our perception of that shifts. People begin to change how they think of righteousness and how they think they can achieve righteousness. But from God's outset, it was his declaration over us. And so it's really the state of being right with God. It can't be the state of being right in your actions. That's your involvement. Righteousness is a declaration, not an achievement. And so if God declares man to be righteous, this is on the part of God. It is God giving us a state of righteousness. So prior to the giving of the law, when we see righteousness as a concept, it is God declaring man to be good by faith. It is never God declaring man to be something by his performance. And then the Mosaic law, God gives to Moses legal code. Now we can go down all the branches of how much of that was written and engraved on stone and how much of that was by the hand of Moses and how much of that might have been oral tradition. We'll actually get into some of those things in these lessons. But once law enters the picture, Israel then has a relationship with God based upon what she does. And Israel seems to be pretty satisfied with that. In fact, there's an indicator in the Hebrew when Israel stands at the base of Sinai that they say to God, whatever you say to us, we can do it. And that, they get the law. And from that moment on, there's a, a shift in their attitude. The longer that they deal with the Mosaic concept of law, the more we see Israel shift the way she thinks about her own righteousness. And there's a reason for that. As Israel goes out of Egypt, they demand performance, they demand law, which leads to the demand of a king. These are sort of hand in hand, That because you, you'll remember God. it wasn't God's idea to give them Solomon. It was their idea to have a king. God gave them Solomon. It was his best choice for them. But uh, they were the ones who demanded as much, which is exactly sort of what law starts to do in us. But Israel's attitude starts to shift towards the law, and, and it happens because of her leader. Um, I don't want to pile on Moses, but Moses has a tendency in the Old Testament to sort of round out the law or add a little bit of his own ideas into what God tells Israel to do. There was a particular moment in the Old Testament where God told Israel to, to go and pray so that tomorrow uh, he would speak to them. Moses comes down the mountain, goes to Israel and says, hey, everybody go pray and don't sleep with your wife. <laughs> you get to that verse and say, where does Moses come up with this? And he, he kind of has a tendency to sort of add a little bit of, and again, it's not fair to really to, to, to impugn his character, but he kind of does what we do. We see the, the black and white and we think, go towards that and do everything you can. And a little bit, if a little bit goes a long way, 
Where would a bunch go? And so there's this addition. He sort of start, starts to add to it. If he does that with the law, why wouldn't he do that with righteousness? And so if being righteous is God declares you righteous, it stands to reason that before long, you're going to start to have this addition to what righteousness looks like. Let me give you a, a, an example of this. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 24 and 25, and do yourself a favor and, and look these verses up in a, in a copy of your Bible in which you get italicized words. That'd be good. Um, look it up in a copy of the Bible in which you get quotations so that you know who's speaking and who's not. Because sometimes God's talking to Moses. Sometimes God's talking through Moses. Sometimes Moses is talking all by himself. And so you want to make sure you see that. Read Deuteronomy 6 because it starts to talk about the great commandment of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. That ends up in the New Testament as well. And as Moses starts to caution the people in the middle of chapter 6 about disobedience, listen to what he says in the 24th and 25th verse of Deuteronomy 6. The Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he commanded us. Take a look at that verse again. Then it will be righteousness for us if we do all he's commanded. This isn't God talking. This is Moses talking. So the point is, is that as Israel begins to embrace the law, she changes her understanding of righteousness. No longer does Israel consider herself righteous because of faith in Abraham, because of the same faith Abraham had. No longer is righteousness something they think is declared upon them by God. Now Moses replaces it and says, it will be righteousness to us if we do the right thing and if we shun the wrong thing. Where does he get this idea? I think he gets it from the, the fact that law begins to influence every area of his life. And there's sort of the attitude that, hey, if we had a covenant with Abraham in which we believe and then God counts us righteous and then God gives us a covenant with Moses, surely the, first, the, the second covenant replaces the first one. And so maybe our righteousness is wrapped up in our ability to do this as well. And so I, I think that by the time you get to the apostle Paul, uh, of course, Jesus references righteousness, and there's um, Jesus talks about righteousness in relation to the Pharisees. That's for another lesson. But I want to I deal with Paul because Paul does a brilliant job of reaching back into Israel, Old Testament Israel, pulling that concept into a new covenant world, and then really comparing those two worlds. In other words, he fleshes out the idea because Paul, in his theology, states that Israel had replaced faith with performance. Think of it like this. Romans chapter 9 and verse number 30, Paul says, What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? Now that word attained is important because they've arrived at something. How did the Gentiles arrive at righteousness? Well, Ask yourself how Noah arrived at righteousness. How did Abraham arrive at righteousness? Noah walked with God and believed. God said, I'm going to flood the earth. Noah said, I agree. I'll make a boat. God said, he's a righteous man. God tells Abraham, come out of the land of your country to a land that I will show you and I will give it to you. Abraham does. God says, you know what? I count you righteous. What did he have to do? 
Just obey and believe. And as he obeys and believes, boom, God declares, not earns, but God declares him righteous. Moses takes the concept and goes, if we do the right thing, we will be righteous, rather than if we believe the right thing, we will be righteous. So Paul says, Gentiles have attained righteousness, the righteousness of faith, 31, Romans 9. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. So what happens with Israel is they don't seek righteousness by faith, they seek righteousness by law. Now remember, God's declaring Noah and Abraham righteous, right, um, in good standing with God, reference to a king, reference to a judge, all the things we talked about. God's declaring them righteous based upon their faith. Moses comes along and says, if we do the right thing, we'll be declared righteous. Paul comes along and goes, wrong. You don't get declared righteous because you do the right thing. You get declared righteous because you believe the right one. And he says, so the Gentiles receive righteousness. Israel doesn't have God's righteousness. And then he clarifies. You sneak down to Romans chapter 10, verse 3. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness. This, is, this ignorant, by the way, is his prayer. This is for Israel. Verse 1, my prayer for Israel is that they may be saved. Verse 3, they're ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So they're ignorant of something. They're not stupid, they just don't know. What is it that they don't know? They don't really realize God's righteousness. I wanna focus on that for a moment because it's a, it's a key point. They are ignorant of God's righteousness. So what is God's righteousness? Well, righteousness for God is a declaration in which he declares man in right standing. How do we get there? He said this to the Romans in chapter 1, verse 17. In it, don't worry, we'll give you what it is in a moment. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for as it is written, the just shall live by faith. By the way, where the as it is written is Habakkuk 2.4, Always good to go make those Old Testament, New Testament connections as a Bible student. So you can go to Habakkuk 2.4, see the usage of the just shall live by faith, and then watch Paul grab that. Paul loves that verse, by the way, about as much as anything he loves in the Old Testament is that obscure little Habakkuk reference that the just shall live by faith. And he really builds the concept of, the, of New Covenant Christianity on that verse from the Old Testament. And so inside of it, whatever it is, which we'll get to, inside of it is the righteousness of God revealed, but it's not revealed from work to work. Paul says it's revealed from faith to faith because for God, righteousness had always been revealed by faith. It had never been revealed by performance. It was Moses, I'm repeating myself, I know, but it was Moses who declared righteousness to be by performance, not God. So what is the it of Romans 1.17? Well, it speaks back to probably Paul's most famous verse, Romans 1.16, which is, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The, the phrase there really is, I am not disappointed in the gospel, but inside of the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And then Romans 1.17, inside of that, you see how righteous God is. So when you look at the good news of Jesus, you see the righteousness of God. 
and the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So when Paul in Romans 10, and I'm going to go back there, in Romans 10.3, when Paul says, they, Israel, are ignorant of God's righteousness and they go about to establish their own righteousness. When he says uh, God's righteousness, he's talking about the gospel of Christ from Romans 1.16. And they've not submitted to the righteousness of God. Notice, we submit, we don't obtain. We submit. We, we don't go after God's righteousness. We submit to God's righteousness. And the great challenge for, to me in, in sharing with people about their own righteousness is that so many of us define righteousness by what we do. It's very difficult to get people to lay down the what do you do for your righteousness idea. And it's so difficult because in a lot of circles, we go back to church and we get told what we need to be doing. And so we walk out of the building with this list of instructions for what we need to do if we want to be anointed or what we need to do if we want to have favor or what we need to do if we want to be blessed and a laundry list of other things. And I think it's because we've forgotten, in some ways, we're ignorant of God's righteousness, which can't be obtained, it can only be submitted to. It can only be given to us by declaration of God. In other words, it can only be received. Notice another Pauline key verse, Romans chapter 5 and verse number 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Grace in all of its abundance must be received, but my key here. And that's no doubt a verse you go back to over and over and over again in understanding the new covenant. But the key here is the gift of righteousness must be received. Otherwise, it's not a gift, it's a paycheck. And a lot of people treat righteousness like a paycheck. I do all that I should do. I don't do the stuff I shouldn't do. I expect that God will give me something in return. One of the lessons that we will cover in this module and that we cover in the book is that idea of how the church has taken Paul's theory of Sauline righteousness and transferred it over into Christianity. And I think it's a tragedy. But the root of that is that whole idea of I, get, I do good and then I get good, or I do bad and then I get bad, which is a Mosaic concept, not a God concept. Moses' idea was if we'll do the right thing, we'll be considered the right people. God always wanted us to believe. And he always wants us to submit to a righteousness that we receive free of charge. So see righteousness reimagined in the New Testament, or I kind of like to say righteousness is the rebirth of an old idea. Pre-Moses, righteousness is Noah's because he walks with God, Abraham's because he believes God. Paul brings righteousness back to its core in his writings to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, and we'll establish a few things with Paul in this understanding. Galatians chapter 3, verse 12. The law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. I think Paul establishes 
in Galatians 3, 12, 13, and 14, three principal points. First of all, the law requires no faith. This is a difficult one for, a, for us who come into Christ by faith and we get faith, we hear about faith all the time as this construct, as this object. You can get more of it. Some of you don't have enough of it. Those are the kind of things that we hear taught. Uh, I think we've quantitatively messed up the definition of faith because we think that it's about quantity instead of quality. It's almost as if we miss the fact that Jesus said, you don't need much. I mean, a grain of mustard seed will work. So it's not a, ma a matter of how much I get, but really what I'm doing with it. And the law doesn't need your faith because you don't need to believe in thou shalt not commit adultery. You need no faith to do that. You just need action. So if God says thou shalt not kill, he doesn't require you to come to him and say, Lord, I, I believe in thou shalt not kill. You don't have to believe in anything. Just don't kill. And so the law doesn't need your faith. That's a Pauline establishment. So, and, and this might seem really elementary to us, but it was kind of path-breaking for him. Because, maybe not for him, but maybe for Israel. Because they, had, they believed they were a people of faith. And a lot of the New Testament is Paul trying to show you that as much as people think that they are people of faith, because they do the right thing, it's simply proof that, that they're not a people of faith because people of faith aren't concerned with doing the right thing. They're concerned with believing in the right one. And that's Paul's next building block because that, thir that 13th verse is Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So Paul believed that there was a law inherent with the, uh, I'm sorry, there was a curse inherent with the law. If a man tried to live by the law, it stirred things inside of him. Sort of like Paul would say to the Romans that I was alive, then, then the law came, sin revived, I died. In other words, I was doing okay until people started putting the law on me. And the moment people started putting the law on me, something bad happened. So there's a curse that was attached to the breaking of the law. Christ redeemed us from that. And then finally, by freeing us from the curse, verse 14, the blessing of Abraham gets to come upon Gentiles, which was entirely new thing, which we'll see in our Pharisee lesson. But the idea that righteousness could come upon the Gentiles was over the top. But notice that Paul says that if we, once we display faith, we're freed from the curse of the law, we get to go back to where? He doesn't say we get Moses's promise. He doesn't say we get Israel's in the land. He said we get Abraham's promise. What, what did God say to Abraham? Well, I mean, we could work through all the stuff Abraham was promised, but we get to be what Abraham was because it, it leads us into an understanding that what happened to Israel under the Mosaic law, under the covenant, has come to an annulment in the finished work of Christ, but the Mosaic could not overrun what the Abrahamic was accomplishing. So look with me at Galatians chapter 3, verse 17. This I say that the law which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. In other words, even though the law came 430 years after, the, the uh, Sinai comes 430 years after Abraham. Paul says it can't annul what God was doing through Abraham by faith, which means that now... When we come in through the same faith Abraham comes in, we get to receive exactly what Abraham received regardless of race or gender or nationality or social status or as Paul says, and I'll close out with the last four verses of Galatians 3, you are all sons of God 
through faith in Christ Jesus. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and your heirs according to the promise. So notice that if you belong to Christ, you subsequently belong to Abraham. And you're an heir not according to what you do, but you're an heir according to who you believe. So as children of God, and this is why that concept of children is so crucial to the Bible, we receive God's righteousness and we receive it as something that he has given to us because we've submitted to him by faith, not something that we've earned from him because we have done all of the right things. Smattering overview. You walk away understanding this. Righteousness is the heart of God. God always declared men righteous because of their faith in him. It was man who twisted it into thinking they could receive righteousness as a status based upon what they've done. But when Paul comes along and sees what Christ does on our behalf, he says, no, I'm going to take you all the way back to Abraham. I'm going to take you all the way back to where righteousness is something given to you because of faith in Christ. It's really that you and I get a status of righteousness based upon our faith. When we examined righteousness in this book, Righteous Saul versus Righteous Paul, we examine it through the lens of Old Testament and the Mosaic and the idea of man considering himself righteous based on what he does. Then Paul has his Damascus Road experience and Paul changes. The, the Paul that writes Galatians, could, he could have never written that as Saul. But then having seen Jesus and realizing that righteousness can't be something Paul can achieve on his own, he changes his tune. And thank God for Paul because he rounds out for all of us what righteousness was supposed to be all along. And that's a journey for Paul as he works through what he knew under the old covenant into what we know under the new covenant. And hopefully as we take that journey with him, we get a better understanding of what it means to be righteous in the eyes of God and what it means to be righteous in our lives. And we start to understand, as I think you will as you dig in, that it's not about positional righteousness versus practical righteousness, that positionally you are what God says you are, but practically you're not. That is an Old Testament practice. That's an Old Covenant practice. And as we get into Saul, we'll start to see that as well.